internet friends, and welcome to Love Hate Relationship, an opinionated podcast for opinionated people. I'm Andy Bowell. And I'm Alex Ruiz, and as ever, we are here to brighten your day, anger your soul, and tell you how to live your lives in that order. And Andy, you said you had something you wanted to drop me into? <laughs> yes, I had a, a very uh, apropos of nothing topic for the douchebag buffer this go around. It's one of our triples, so you know we're going to spend a long time talking about one particular subject. Alex, did you know that famous comic book writer Grant Morrison was non-binary? Yo, I did not until very, very recently. I I saw some tweet that referred to Grant Morrison as they, and was like, "What? I, I you know, I've got a, I've got a bunch of Grant Morrison comics um, sitting on my shelf next to me, Grant, and all of the copy on those. Um, granted, I bought them all, you know, probably more than five years ago. Um, all the copy on all of those." still say he on them so i was not aware at all right i i wasn't either and uh, as far as i can know i've I've dug into this a little bit it's actually come up today um because people are trying to bring up some controversy and some problematic aspects of his writing but at the same time trying to make sure that they respect uh grant by addressing them by their proper pronouns which I suppose I love the spirit of. Um, as far Look, when, when Caitlyn Jenner came out, um, you know, I, I I maintain Caitlyn Jenner is a terrible, terrible person, but I'm going to call her Caitlyn. I'm sure. going to use she, her pronouns. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. So, you know, I, I dug around a little bit and I guess uh, a little over, uh, or no, like five months ago, um, Grant Morrison was giving an interview with Bleeding Cool News, which is a, a very nerdy uh, internet site, um, and talked about how they identify as non-binary, and ever since they were a little kid have like felt this way and had this very ambiguous sense of gender and sexuality, but never had any of a uh, language for it because you know, the, they're, uh, they're like at least 50 or something. So yeah. I, I just found it really interesting because, you know, Grant Morrison is probably as famous a comic writer as you would have nowadays. He's not a Stan um, Lee. You can't say his name in any house in America and, and people have an idea of who you're talking about. But I'd say the rung below that, certainly. I mean, yeah, it's they are, um, you know, they're, you know, we, we talked about we, we've referenced um, our mutual love of uh, writer and artist Bill Sienkiewicz on the show multiple times. Mm-hmm. Um, and Bill Sienkiewicz is, you know, a household name among comic book fans. Right. Um, that's not to say that, like, if you're, it, it doesn't pass the grandma test, you know, or doesn't pass the my parents test. My parents don't know who Grant Morrison is. Um, hey, mom, you, I don't think you've ever read a single one of the comic books on my shelf. That's totally cool. <laughs> um, but like, yeah, like Grant Morrison, they're not gonna pass that test. But you know. As far as I, I know a number of people who have said that a Grant Morrison comic is one of their first comics or one of the first comics they ever read that like 
really, really said something to them, like showed them comics can be a great art form, because that's the kind of writer Grant Morrison is in a lot of ways. I'm not going to sit here and say that all Grant Morrison books are good, because they're out there. Um, they definitely, they like to shoot and tr shoot for and try some weird stuff. And sometimes it works. That's your animal mans. That's your, um, new X-Men. I was about to say, sometimes, yeah. sometimes it's okay. You know, your final crisis. It's, it's, it's fine. It's not great. It's not bad. Sometimes it's multiversity, which who knows what the fuck was happening during multiversity. Like, I still don't understand it, but like... You know, I, you know what? Grant Morrison is to a certain generation of comics readers what Alan Moore was to me. Which is not to say that I defend everything Alan Moore has said or Grant Morrison has done. But, like, I, I can point to a couple of Alan Moore comics and go, this, this is what taught me that comics could be art. That was Grant Morrison for a number of people. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the, I mean, he's probably most famous for his run of new X-Men. Uh, he wrote Batman Arkham Asylum, serious house on serious earth, which they um, Andy, they identify as they, thank you. You're right. I apologize. They I are, love you. they are most well known for their run of new X-Men, um, as well mm -hmm. as Batman Arkham Asylum, a serious house on serious earth with the delightful Dave McKean. Um, I hate that book. I love that book. It's just hard to look at. <laughs> I just, I know you love that book. I read that book for the first time when you let me borrow your copy of it years ago. And I just was reading it and I was just like, I don't like the Like, I don't like the writing in it. And I really hate the art in it. It has like a couple of cool concepts, but I just, I loathe that book. That was also one of Grant Morrison's earliest projects too. Yeah. Like... So I, I I appreciate that I believe that they've gotten better with time, but ugh, that book that book is a hard sell for me. That's that's fair. You know, the other thing I'll say is Grant Morrison's one of the few people who has ever written Superman in a way that I appreciate with All Star Superman. Um, Absolutely, the best Superman story ever told. Yeah, exactly. I, I think you're right. The biggest thing you could say about Grant Morrison's work is that it's weird. I've heard someone describe it as there is nothing Morrison hates more than status quo. And I would say that is accurate. Yeah. Um, the coolest thing about Grant Morrison, honestly, is that um, they definitely have this really interesting philosophy that they try and put into their work um, about the nature of reality and the nature of time. Intriguingly, actually... Um, Grant Morrison seems to pitch this idea that reality functions very similarly to a comic book in that um, your eye goes across the page of a comic and each moment there's there's a sense of time and movement in a comic book, but it is a, in reality a series of static images and something that a lot of physicists have argued about is any moment in the present is just that singular moment and we don't understand how you move one moment forward to another in time we see that it happens we don't know why and morrison seems to have this philosophical pitch that 
comic books and time work very similarly. Singular moments that just move from one space to the next. And that's cool as shit, but really <laughs> hard to explain to, like, any new comic reader. Yeah. I mean, props to, like, uh, applying a, a philosophy to it. That's certainly more than a lot of people are going to do. And I, I think that really helps illustrate why they are such a famous figure in the comics industry. Um, just that that vibe and that lifestyle. That's fair. They are also kind of problematic in a few different ways. Um, a few of their books don't exactly have great views of women. Um, a few of their books definitely revel in some weird torture porny kind of stuff. Um, a few of their books are a little, it's a little odd. The self insertion. Um, <laughs> Because Grant Morrison likes to write themselves into their books weirdly often. Um, also, they're like, um, quote-unquote, uh, magician. And like to cast spells and shit. And y- you do with that what you want, whatever right. whatever your belief systems are. Yeah, but This is entirely new information to me. Oh, you didn't know that uh, Grant Morrison and Alan Moore are in a uh, long-standing wizarding feud? <laughs> you know, hearing you say those words out loud, it makes me vaguely remember seeing a tweet about that. But no, I, I didn't take it as serious. I will not actually, like, link to this in the show notes or anything. But if any of you are vague comic book fans and you know who Alan Moore and Grant Morrison are, Google... Alan Moore Grant Morrison feud and put the word magic somewhere in there and you will find plethoras of ridiculousness. They have cast curses on one another. They have written curses into their books on one another. They hate each other and are like dueling wizards. It's fantastic. I... Welcome to love hate relationship. <laughs> I mean, what what can what can you say beyond that? Thank you for yeah, sticking no, with us. Cool. We're actually not going to talk about um, uh, famous comic book writers from the United Kingdom this episode. It'll probably mm-hmm. come up again. Knowing us, it'll most certainly come up again. Uh, but oh sure. Usually, one of us talks about something we love, something we hate, and then we take your internet questions. Today, it is one of our triple love specials, and so we are just going to focus on somebody that the two of us love very dearly, and that is American film director John Carpenter. Fuck yeah! So. Andy, this is a more kind of windy uh, setup than we even normally do for the triples because we both agreed, like, I think a couple of months ago that we wanted to do John Carpenter as a triple love. Yep. Um, And there's a lot of things we can get into with John Carpenter. Um, We are definitely going to spend some time talking about a couple of our favorite John Carpenter movies, um, namely... Uh, and we've talked about this on the show before, one of your favorite movies in the entire world, in the entire pantheon of cinema, and one of my favorite movies in the entire pantheon of cinema, um, 
each of those were directed by John Carpenter. Those are two separate movies. And I want to give that the space it deserves. But um, as far as starting off, should we should we just talk a little bit about who John Carpenter is as a person? Yeah, I think that's probably the, you know, the best place to start. You know, as I said, he's an American film director. For anybody who didn't know, uh, John Carpenter was born January 16th, 1948 in Carthage, New York. Um, but moved to Kentucky when he was very, very young and became interested in film and movies at a very young age. And it's reported that he was making his own like eight millimeter short films um, before he even started high school. So, so set the scene. We've got a, a middle school aged boy in early sixties, Kentucky running around with an eight millimeter making horror movies. That in and of itself has become like a nostalgic subgenre of movies nowadays. Um, yeah. He he attended West Kentucky University, um, actually looking into getting a music degree. Uh, left that to go to the University of Southern California uh, for a cinematic arts degree, and actually dropped out of college a second time to just go ahead and start making his first, his first feature film, which if you can, you do, especially back then. Yeah. I mean, you know, it worked out for him. <laughs> Very much so. Um, it, one, one of his first projects um, was actually the short film that won an Academy Award and, and Carpenter wasn't the um, director on it, but he collaborated with a producer, a guy named John Longenecker. Um, and, mm-hmm. and I've never heard of this film, the resurrection of Broncho Billy, but you know, it, it won an Oscar and winning an Oscar is enough that I guess back in the seventies, they turned to everybody and was like, okay, sell us your movie pitch. What you got? I mean, like, okay. Setting aside everything that we, that I very specifically have said about award shows and very specifically the Oscars, um, all of which I continually stand by. Um, yeah, you're right. In 1970, uh, you know, you don't, you don't have viral movies at that point, but if you can slap up on a movie poster, Academy Award winner, John Carpenter, even if at that point he's a 24 year old kid who just won, um, we just won an Oscar for a short film. Um, Andy, you've watched the Oscars. Uh, I, I, I have seen the Oscars too. There is a short film category. There's a few different short film categories. There is, um, indeed. Other than Pixar, how many fucking short films do you watch in a year? <laughs> you know, it depends on if I run across something like Batman vs. Alien or... You know, some some Marvel movie proof of concept thing. Other than those, yeah, I mean, to, to answer your question, probably one or two short films a year, maybe. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, it's and it's a it's a longstanding thing. Most directors, uh, most film people in general, they start off making short films. They that's that's still true today. For the most part, I think they end up on YouTube rather than as studio flicks. Um, but all the same, short films are a place to start. And yeah, if you, if you're the 24 year old wunderkind who won an Oscar for a short film, I mean, if I'm a big 1970s movie producer, I'm going to first, you know, put out my cigar on somebody's face, say something racist, but then I'm going to ask for a meeting with that carpenter kid. 
Indeed. You know, to, to change it real quick, I I'm thinking about, have you ever read Bruce Campbell's autobiography? I have not. I've seen it. Um, I've seen it in a few different places. Isn't it called like a chin? You could, if chins uh, could kill, that was it. If chin, because Bruce Campbell famously jaw cut. Groovy. Yeah. Um, I love this book very, very much. I own it. I got it at a garage sale and it's one of the best like garage sale finds I've ever found. And it's Bruce Campbell talking all about like his early filmmaking college years and being Sam Raimi's roommate. And they talk extensively about how incredibly difficult it is to just pitch a movie if you're you're coming from nothing even if the nothing you're coming from is being you know uh, somebody who's majoring in film at a southern california school and and he talks about specifically trying to pitch the original evil dead um with sam raimi at like film festivals and stuff and that came out like 10 years later than this something like that mm-hmm. so it's so it, it's just yep. interesting to me you, you know, you go back far enough and you can basically just, you know, make a short film, win an Oscar and that jumpstarts your film career. But then there's a very clear line where all of a sudden it's like you have to fight tooth and nail and claw to even get your movie made. I mean, yeah, because it's funding is a thing. Dist- fuck distribution is a thing, especially back then. Um, cause you can only, you have to get actual theaters to pick your stuff up. Mm-hmm. Uh, never mind just funding it. Um, when we talked about Kevin Smith, you know, it was $27,000, um, to fund clerks and he spent most of that money on film, just the film. Yeah. So I suppose all that to say, you know, I'm picturing this kid in early sixties, you know, Americana just making movies and heavily looking through it with rose tinted nostalgia classics. That kind of sounds like every filmmaker's dream childhood right there. You, you know, it does, but also like, we'll get into this a little bit later when we're talking about some of the actual movies that Carpenter works on, but it's also like exactly what you would expect for Carpenter because he is such a, Okay, what do I have to work with? Do I have $300,000 and a prop department that's basically going to go to the dollar store? Okay, I'll make this. Do I have the greatest special effects team that uh, Hollywood has ever seen and a ridiculous budget that I can blow on making the most horrifying monsters ever? Yeah. Yeah, okay. I'll make a movie with that. Like... It doesn't matter what you give him. He will use it to the best of its abilities. Which is really commendable. And so getting into that, let's let's talk about the films. And I want to start right at the top. You know, um, he won an Academy Award for a short film and then was basically given like not carte blanche, but was, you know, approached by a studio and was like, OK, kid, make your movie. And the movie he made was 1974's Dark Star. Have you ever seen Dark Star? I have not. It's one of those movies that I've heard referenced in a few in a bunch of places, but I have never actually seen it. 
So Dark Star is the kind of movie that my dad showed me as I was growing up being like, okay, listen, you got to see this. This is like one of the most influential films to me. This was, this was the thing that the, the cult movie sci-fi nerds of my day, because it's absolutely what my dad was. This is what like the real underground nerds were watching. And this movie is so great. Dark star is a fascinating movie because it has a final budget of $60,000, which even in the seventies, isn't that Mm. much. And it is a a sci-fi horror comedy that features an alien, which is just a beach ball painted a funny way. (laughs) Okay. And a sentient nuclear warhead, which the crew of this spaceship must talk out of committing suicide. That is the movie we're talking about here. That is the kind of thing. This this Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy weird kind of thing. It is It is not a good movie per se, but it is a very interesting movie, especially to be made in 1970. And the biggest thing that people talk about it um, is that it was co-wrote Uh, John Carpenter co-wrote it with Dan O'Bannon, who's a guy who went on to write Alien and took a lot of the things from Dark Star and was like, okay, but let's actually make it scary. Hello, Bob? Are you with me? I wish I had more time. Why don't you have more time? Because I must detonate. I'm not mad about that. Alien is another movie that I actually really, really love. Like, that is another... That's probably a top ten, like, favorite movies. And probably, like, a top five favorite horror movies. Sure. Absolutely. Um, and and, pro- and probably, like, top five favorite sci-fi movies. I, I, I don't want to get too all over the place and tangential. Just yes or no me this. Have we had the argument of which is better, Alien or Aliens? We have not, but um, I will fight you that Alien is the (laughs) better movie, but they are two very different movies. Yeah, that's okay. That's a a conversation for a future episode, probably when we inevitably talk about Ridley Scott and and how much I hate what he became. (laughs) You know, it'd make a hell of a douchebag buffer. I could do a love and a hate on just Ridley Scott, but we're not talking about him. If I ever call out sick, you should just do a solo episode with that. You know? Anyway. <laughs> so so he, he starts off with Dark Star, which is a... Think of it as if Alien was a comedy. Um, and, and he receives... You know, to your point, he received a lot of praise for his ability... Uh, for He received a lot of praise for his ability to work within a low budget. That was the thing mm-hmm. where people were like, okay, this isn't good, but you made this for only 60 grand. The return on investment is very good. Sure. And so with that, he was able to make uh, his his second film, which is the thing I think that people actually remember him as being like, oh yeah, that was the first John Carpenter joint, which is the original Assault on Precinct 13. And I will go ahead and say, you know, I have not seen Assault on Precinct 
precinct 13. Um, but I, you know, that is just one of those titles that I've always kind of heard growing up. You know, it, it was remade with, uh, into a pretty awful John Travolta movie. If I remember correctly, or no, I'm thinking of taking a Pelham one, two, three. No, no, no. Okay. Assault on precinct 13 was remade into a really bad Lawrence Fishburne movie. That's what it was. So I haven't seen the Lawrence Fish, uh, the Lawrence Fishburne version. Uh, I did watch the original many years ago, and I've only seen it once. I'll be honest, I don't remember very much of it. But the way that I remember that movie is basically as... um, It was one of the only times that I've seen, like, uh, one of those... This all takes place in one place movies. Oh, my favorite obscure subgenre. Do, do you do you know the premise of Assault on Precinct Thirteen? Besides the fact that it is the assault on the Thirteenth Precinct of New York, Chicago. <laughs> yeah. So the basic the the elevator pitch on Assault on Three Precinct Thirteen is that you know it's the lone cop movie. And it's the, it's basically this cop who needs to, like, defend his precinct from this, um, it's like a gang. Like it's... criminal gang attacking it. Right, I remember and he's got, it's... like, the gang leader locked up, and it's like, okay, dude, not only my gang, but every gang that wants to be in my gang is coming for you tonight. Yeah, and, and you know, it's, it's funny, it has very Night of the Living Dead vibes, uh, in a certain way. So it's super, like, again, one location for almost the whole movie. Very, like, you're freaked out by the people who are just kind of coming up randomly. It's not really a horror movie, per se. Like, it doesn't use that film style. But there are a lot of just, like, sudden jumps and really tense moments. Like, it's it's a solid movie. I don't go in for thrillers usually, like... It's never been a favorite genre of mine. I, I can name a number of thrillers I like, but like that's a solid ass movie. Sure. No, absolutely. You know, I, yeah, I bring it up even despite not seeing it because like that's the first thing that people would say. Yeah, I've heard of that movie. Um, it's the first movie that Carpenter considers to be a real feature film because he was forced to make it on an actual like film schedule, which he didn't have to do for dark star. And so, you know, Carpenter himself considers that his first real Hollywood directorial experience. And, um, you know, co-wrote that with somebody named Deborah Hill, who, Mm -hmm. uh uh-huh. Who I know, you know, very fondly and leads us into the next talking point. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, I don't think we're going to, like... I think after this point, we can feel free to skip around some of his movies. Absolutely. But um, this leads us into his third feature film, which is one of my favorite movies in the entire world. And that is Halloween. 1978's original Halloween. Now, this is a movie that I have watched... Probably a probably two or three dozen times. It's a movie I grew up on. Um, 
What? What was that sigh? No, no, it was it was a it was a contented like quiet laugh under my breath. This is a movie that I have given to you as a Christmas gift, the like special commemorative 25th anniversary edition of the original Halloween, which was a total find at some random video store in the mall. And I remember when I bought it, the the super nerdy film checkout guy was like, oh, I didn't know we had this. I would have kept this in the back room where no one else could get it. And I thank you for it. Because <laughs> uh, I didn't have my own DVD of it. And I don't own many DVDs, but I have that DVD of Halloween. Um, I love Halloween. Like, I, I grew up on slasher movies. Like, I was a fan of slasher movies. And especially those, like, 80 slasher movies. Right. Um, and now, I always say, uh, Halloween did not invent the slasher genre. Um but it kind of codified and perfected it. So it, it's interesting because uh, I recent, uh, like in a recent rewatch of it, uh, where I actually sat down and watched it, I think it, I watched it with Stephanie and it was the second time she had seen it, I think. Um, and my wife famously like is not big on horror movies, but she can watch Halloween because actually as a horror movie, as far as horror movies go, it does so much with so little. There are four deaths in that entire movie. Like four murders in that entire movie. It 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 establishes it establishes the silent killer who like it often masks. Like Jason is a direct ripoff of Michael Myers in in Halloween. Sure. Um yeah, a- absolutely. It establishes like the single weapon thing. Um, the way that scares are kind of organized there. Um, this is inadvertent. John Carpenter has talked about this in interviews, but um, the idea of like the sexually um, promiscuous teenagers I was ab- who suddenly who then get killed. I was about to say, does this propagate the trope that if you have sex in a slasher movie, you die because? I'm trying to think. I don't think that happens in Black Christmas, which is really the only slasher you can point to that came out before Halloween, or at least yes, the only major and, one. Yeah, and John Carpenter has fully admitted that uh, Black Christmas was a big inspiration for Halloween. So inadvertently, yes, John Carpenter's attitude towards the sexuality in Halloween was very much, they're teenagers. This is what teenagers do. There are the teenagers who like to have a bunch of sex. There are the teenagers who like to smoke a bunch of weed. And there are the teenagers like uh, Jamie Lee Curtis's character, Laurie, who are just do none of that. And they're the responsible teenagers. And John Carpenter's attitude was, I'm just presenting different teenagers. It just so happened that of his four deaths, two of most, them. The, ones, the, the ones who were teenagers are the ones who fuck. Yeah. And he didn't intend for that, but that's an interpretation that followed that movie. Um, just, and, and honestly, that that didn't, ha- he has said, that didn't happen for any moral reasons. That just, how that's how the story worked out. Like, after the teenagers have sex, one of them can be downstairs and by himself, where he can be murdered, uh, in one of the most cinematically perfect murder scenes that has ever existed. Um, <laughs> 
physically impossible. Uh, this is the scene in Halloween where uh, a teenage uh, a teenage young man is um, grabbed by the throat, hoisted up against a wall, and stabbed, and then the knife holds him in place in the wall. Uh, absolutely would not happen in real life. None of the physics check out. It is one of the coolest horror movie deaths of all time. Um, <laughs> and that's what it should be remembered for. Yeah. And then after that, he can go upstairs and kill the girlfriend. Um, like, it's, it was just narrative convention. But somehow out of that, people interpreted, oh, well, the ones who fuck and who drink and who smoke weed, they're the ones who die. And sweet little Lori, the responsible one, she's the one who survives. And I honestly think that had more to do with the fact that Lori was the babysitter and John Carpenter didn't want to kill the children. Sure. Because sure. John Carpenter is not Robert. Robert Rodriguez and and probably for the best that he's not I so I I know that Halloween is one of your favorite films of all time yes and we've talked extensively about it and and the legacy of it and I I don't have the same um intense appreciation of Halloween but I I will wholeheartedly admit the the first one is a classic so I want to kind of ask you, do you think that there is anything to be said on people confusing John Carpenter and Wes Craven? You know, it's actually funny because um, I, I remember watching They Live recently, um, actually for your podcast, Cult Fiction. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, but at the end, there that's another John Carpenter movie, which we can talk about in this episode. Um, but there's a bit at the end where, um, there's kind of a shitty televangelist dude complaining about the horror movies of John Carpenter and Wes Craven. Um, the thing I always say on that front, um, John Carpenter is a great horror movie director, but he is not exclusively a horror movie director. Sure. Um, he's, he's a pioneering one. He is a very important one. Uh, he has directed, you know, a couple of the greatest horror movies that have ever been made. Um, but Wes Craven is, I think, the, the horror movie director. Like, the person who dedicated himself to the craft of horror movies and defined and redefined so many versions of the horror movie down to even having his own slasher movie a couple of them actually like a couple of slasher movie franchises are attributable to Wes Craven so I think for people who want to lump the two in together um I think it comes down to the fact that there's there's a sense of Michael Myers and Freddy Krueger or Michael Myers and Ghostface for the two slasher franchises that Wes Craven is attached to. And there's a lot of people who don't realize that, you know, John Carpenter didn't continue the franchise for Halloween. Right. Like... He directed the first one, 
Um, I don't think he was involved at all in the second one. Um, I certainly know he did not direct it. Um, I'm trying to remember if he was at all involved in the story. Um, but he very much had nothing to do with what followed uh, of that franchise. That was all other people. Uh, I'm looking at it now. Um, okay, so he um, co-wrote the second one with Deborah Hill, um, but it was directed by Rick Rosenthal. Sure. And then from what I understand, he had nothing to do with the rest of the franchise. They tried to bring him back for Halloween H2O, um, and he originally agreed to it. Jamie Lee Curtis had asked him specifically. Uh, and he was originally going to do it, but um, they couldn't meet. they wouldn't meet his rate. He asked for a certain amount, I think it was $10 million, to direct the movie, uh, which he thought was fair, given that he received basically no money for the original Halloween. Like, because of the independent, because it was an independent film and it was um, the licensing on it, he basically had no money for it. So he was like, I feel like after starting this franchise, I deserve at least this. Uh, and the studio absolutely refused to meet that. And they were so rude to him that he was just like, nah, fuck you guys. And didn't come back. Um, so, yeah, I think that comparison comes down to... I'm sorry, I got on a fun tangent. But I think the comparison comes down to that. Like, you have the guy who originated the slasher genre. And then you have the guy who perfected it. That's exactly how I would characterize it as well. Yeah, because I think, like... It, it, it is a matter of quantity versus quality. Um, I think, you know, the original Nightmare on Elm Street and Wes Craven's New Nightmare, um, both of those are excellent horror movies. I enjoy three quarters of the Scream franchise very much. <laughs> Wait, you hate Scream 3, right? Yes. <laughs> okay, good. Because Scream 3 is the bad one. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. But all that to say, like, neither of those, I think, hold a candle to the original Halloween or to The Thing. And this isn't my segue into The Thing just yet, but I, you know, just all that to say, I agree with you. And the biggest thing, the thing you touched on, Carpenter was not an exclusive genre director in the ways that Wes Craven was pretty much overjoyed to be. You, know, yeah. you, you can make a greatest hits list just out of the films that John Carpenter almost directed. He almost directed Fatal Attraction. He almost directed Top Gun. He almost directed um, Tombstone. He almost directed Eddie Murphy's The Golden Child. Like, oh God! <laughs> and if you actually look at John Carpenter, John Carpenter's filmography, there's less movies than you'd think. He only made 18 films as a director. Yeah, but you know, we we have sci-fi comedy, action thriller, horror, action. Like, he he never. He never really dipped his toes into comedy, which is probably for the best, but like <sighs> comedy's hard. Sure. But you know, he, he managed to be like, I can do an action movie. I can do a sci-fi movie. That's not strictly horror. I can do a sci-fi movie. That's absolutely horror. <laughs> I can do an Elvis biopic for TV. Yes, absolutely. 
So he, you yeah. know, he was, he was a bit more multifaceted at the end of the day, I think. And that, you know, that speaks to the point you made earlier. The guy just really loved movies and we can sit here and, and go like, um, Wes Craven clearly adored and loved horror movies. John Carpenter just loved filmmaking. Yeah. And, and very particularly, he did love horror movies, but you're right. He just, John Carpenter never wanted to do the same thing multiple times. He just, he wasn't interested in that. And even, even if we're just gonna isolate his horror movies, like Halloween and The Thing and Christine are all incredibly different movies. Yeah. Yeah. Factor in, in the mouth of, mm. Factor it in the mouth of madness, which is like a Cthulhu Lovecraftian horror movie. Um, and you know, the, the biggest thing is, you know, you, you already said it. He, he helped write Halloween too, but then he walked away from the entire franchise and was basically like, I have zero interest in making this movie again. Yeah. And, and so I, I listened to an interview with him, um, there's a wonderful podcast. It's called Song Exploder, uh, and they did a the, the, where they deconstruct um, various songs di- by different artists. And they interviewed John Carpenter to talk about his work on the theme for the new Halloween movie uh, that came out, I think, in 2018, uh, which he did not direct. He did not write. That was a totally different story. Um, that was um, Danny McBride and what's his name, David something oh i so forgot Um, danny mcbride did that god (laughs) um oh god i i want to get this right because i do feel like he he like deserves this but um oh fuck most recent movie um halloween okay 2018 uh david gordon green david gordon green and danny mcbride did that one and david gordon green directed it so Mm. John Carpenter came back to do the music for that. Um, But just the music. And to be fair, John Carpenter's original theme for Halloween is maybe the most iconic horror theme of all time. I would argue it is. And the core of my argument is the Friday the 13th noises is not really a song. No, it's really not. But like... It's one of the top, like, film scores. I I gotta say, it's a top 10 of all time film score. And I would put it up there with, like, anything John Williams ever did in that top 10 list. It is an important film score. And to John Carpenter's credit, I'm gonna sit here and say that the score for Halloween is on par with any of the works of John Williams, any of the works of Danny Elfman, um, you know, it, I'll, I'll put it, I'll put it up there with Star Wars. I'll put it up there with Indiana Jones. I'll put it up there with Jurassic Park. I'll put it up there with uh, Nightmare Before Christmas. But unlike people like Williams and Elfman, Carpenter wrote that wrote that song, wrote that score entirely himself, and played it himself, like. I learned I learned in this interview that like they had no money for a composer. Like it was a three thousand three hundred thousand dollar budget for all of Halloween. 
he had enough money to give himself three days in a studio in L.A. He went into the studio with kind of an idea of the melody, something he had kind of ripped off from um, the score, um, Dario Argento's uh, Suspiria, um, which is also, um, and the theme from The Exorcist. Like he kind of had something inspired by those things in his head, the melody. He just went into the studio, had a friend of his who worked at, I think, UCLA, um, come in, program the synthesizers, because they didn't know how to use the fucking synthesizers in the studio. And then he just improvised everything else. Just came up with it on the spot. And it is one of the most iconic film scores of all time. And that is, like, you know, I want to spend time talking about Carpenter as a composer a little later on, but just that alone, that... There was something about, like stuff in the seventies and, and not, and not just the seventies, but like, I'm not sure where it is. There's a clear line in our society where proliferation and accessibility to technology opens things up and the creative floodgates just burst. And because the creative floodgates burst, there's not as much room for something to become iconic like mm-hmm. it's commendable Carpenter basically, you know, taught himself over the course of an afternoon to do everything necessary to make the score. But there's also just such a, like such a mystique to the idea that he was there. He made this song Nobody had really heard anything like this before. Even, you know, even when he freely admits that he took a lot from the Suspiria soundtrack, um, you're, you're right. I mean, I, I'm just sitting here. I've been humming it in my head for like the past five minutes. The Halloween theme is one of the most instantly recognizable pieces of music in film, period. And, and so that's incredible. Yeah. Um, I don't want to spend all of our time talking about Halloween because um, you have a whole nother movie to talk about there. But like, <laughs> but I do think that Halloween Halloween is indicative of one very particular um, side of a spectrum for Carpenter. And I touched on this a little bit earlier, and I definitely know that we'll talk about it more as we discuss The Thing and Escape from L.A. Um, but Carpenter is a master of... You give him something to work with and he'll make it, he'll make something incredible with it. Yeah. Case in point, Halloween, indie film, $300,000 budget. It's his third movie. He doesn't have a lot to work with. He's kind of just figuring this out as he's going along. Um, And he just kind of turns to his costuming and prop people and he's like, okay, with what we have to work with, um, let's see what we can do. Um, Oh, let's, let's cover his face. Like if it, it, we we need to make him more mysterious, uh, and we need to make him seem like a monster. Keep in mind the uh, Michael Myers his his character's name in the credits is the Shape in Halloween. Like he's not even a person. He's he's a force of nature. To that end, John Carpenter goes to his prop guy or his costumes guy and basically goes, "All right, let's make something work." Um, 
and they discuss a few ideas. Ultimately, the prop guy, um, Carpenter did not come up with this. I don't remember the name of the costuming or prop person who did. Um, I'm very sorry. But um, that individual went and bought a William Shatner Star Trek mask at a costume shop. Cut, gave it a little bit of a haircut, like cut the hair up a little bit. And then spray painted it white and cut slightly larger eye holes. That is Michael Myers' mask. Because Carpenter is more DIY than any punk band you will ever see. <laughs> and it speaks for itself. You know, there's there's something about that necessity. There's something about the figure it out, let's make the thing. And you figure it out and you make the thing and you buy a William Shatner mask because uh, that's the one you were like, yeah, this will look creepy as hell. And you create, you create a staple of a genre that the killer has to have something making them mysterious. Like maybe not masks per se, but like the, the killer having a face covering or something that makes them otherworldly, something that makes them into a shape is a staple of the slasher genre because of Halloween. Yeah. Something I know you do on um, Cult Fiction, Andy, is uh, occasionally talk about movies and discuss, like, is this a movie you could make? Mm -hmm. you've, you've, worked on, you've worked on a movie. Um, you've gone to school for movies. You understand, uh, at least academically, if not practically, and as a student of the art form, what goes into making a movie. Right. Besides, like, making sure you can get location permits and maybe, you know, have a prop car on fire, is there anything in Halloween that, like, you couldn't do? You know, I... And, and so for context, for, for listeners, the, the thing that started this is we watched Pretty in Pink, and I talked about how Pretty in Pink is a perfectly fine movie, but I could have shot Pretty in Pink and it wouldn't have changed anything. Um, you know, practically, the answer to your question is no. But, like, I think about the idea of the composition of the shot where Lori thinks that she has killed Michael and she is huddled on her floor. And she's, I, I think she's, like, trying to soothe... Um, Tommy Jarvis mm -hmm. and Michael sits up in the background. Mm -hmm. That is one of the, that, like that, iconic. that is an iconic shot in horror. And I, I don't want to speak about my means. I don't know if I would have thought to have been like, we're not going to cut away. We're not going to move. The dead man is going to sit up. Okay. For, for clarifying sake, never mind the script, never mind the ideas. Practically speaking, could you have shot Halloween? Okay, fair enough. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Because honestly, the biggest thing there is you've got some prop guns. At one point, you've got a car that was that is destroyed. Um, and clearly, you would need, you know, a team of, like, prop people to actually light the car on fire and make sure all of that is safe. Um, you know, obviously, you've got some prop knives, but, like... The costuming, the sets, yeah. even the lighting. Like, so much of it takes place at night in shadow. Like, 
I, I, there's, 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 it looks like a movie that was like in terms of just having an eye in that every frame a painting kind of way, there is nothing about it that is outside mere mortal capability. And yet you have something like that iconic shot with Michael sitting up. You have, uh, admittedly, you have incredible performances. You have Jamie Lee Curtis creating the role of the Scream Queen. You have Donald Pleasance having just so much fun. Just so much fun as Dr. Loomis. Um, it, it, you you have a truly terrifying and imposing figure in the actor who played the shape. Like, it's, it's, it's miraculous what such a creative mind who gathers some additionally creative minds with these limitations can accomplish. I love Halloween because Halloween is a movie that took so little, has so little, four deaths, $300,000, a runtime that's not even a full two hours. Like, I'm pretty sure the runtime for Halloween is just, it's a pretty tight 90. And you can not invent the slasher genre, but define, and, and not perfect it, but define it. And make the most iconic score with just three days in a studio and synthesizers that you needed a friend to program. And you could just define an entire film genre i don't believe in auteur theory i don't think john carpenter is an auteur i think he's a collaborator he's a proud collaborator his writing with deborah hill his work with people like donald pleasance and jamie lee curtis but damn the man did brilliant work with that movie he did no and you know that's that's the one that it's like okay now and forever, you're a name. We're going to put you in textbooks. We're going to study your work. We're going to watch, like, we're going to watch the things you made for, for the rest of time, for the rest of societal history. John Carpenter will have Halloween. And that is so much Speak. more than a lot of people can say. Sure. And, uh, you know, in that vein, um, it, 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 after Halloween... He directed The Fog. He directed Escape from New York. Um, two very solid movies. Uh, I think Escape from New York will deserve some discussion in its own later on in this conversation. Um, he also directed a couple of TV movies, including the movie Elvis with Kurt Russell, which was the first time John Carpenter and Kurt Russell uh, worked together, but wouldn't be the last. <laughs> wouldn't be the last by far. Like... We, we don't have to talk about it a lot because I know what you're leading into. Uh, John Carpenter had this weird muse relationship with Kurt Russell, wound, wound up working with him five times, more than any other major actor, almost work, worked with him a sixth. But I can tell what you're gently leading into. Um, let's talk about the second project they worked on together, which was my favorite horror movie of all time, The Thing. The third project they worked on together, but let's go for it. Because Escape from New York was in there. Ah, fair enough. The third project they worked on. <laughs> you know, I've not actually seen Escape from New York. I'll get that out of the way. 
Uh, watch it drunk. It's more fun. Fair. Go on. <laughs> I have not seen Escape from New York because I was too busy watching The Thing for the eighth time in my childhood. This this fucking movie, man. This is my this this is my favorite horror movie. This is probably my favorite sci-fi movie. This is a movie that I like show people so that I can gauge how good are they based on whether or not they like the thing <laughs> and whether or not they let me ramble about it and, and just give it all the lip service in the world. You know, the thing is probably going to need its own episode to really ever talk about, but I'm, I'm happy to get into it here. It is, you know, for the, for anyone who isn't in the know, it is such a classic, simple premise we have a research station in antarctica we have a bunch of guys and they find something and it shouldn't be the thing is one of the grossest bloodiest like like body horror inspiring movies ever made and Mm. i love it so much which is funny because of your thing with body horror. Which is yeah, normally I I hate body horror. I'm not. Uh, I I definitely and, and there's a thing about like impossibility and and there's so much impossible shit that happens in the thing. But there's something about like it is the one movie that I was ever okay scaring me. If that mm-hmm. makes sense, I liked this movie so much. I was so engaged to watch this alien monster that can take the form of other people or dogs or whatever, but also can mutate into these gross, disgusting, unreal, like creatures. I was so engaged. I was so enthralled. I was so captivated that even as a kid, I was the kind of guy who would absolutely like look away during the jump scare and I could not look away during the thing, you know, talking about Carpenter as a collaborator. And and that's such a, uh, that's such a good way to phrase it because I think there's so much of what makes the thing amazing. You have Carpenter's brilliant direction, but you also have the fact that he gave a 10th of his budget to Rob Botton, who was a, a special effects creature designer guy who you know was one of the like original greats in the business and gave the guy 1.5 million dollars out of his 15 million dollar budget which was unheard of that time and was like here's your effects budget i want everything to be real i want things to be able to move i want things to be wet and gross and disgusting and rob botten went okay buckle up <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to give you a five-headed dog monster that shoots tentacles out of its mouth. I'm going to give and you a you ma- know what it works. It, it works. I'm going to give you a man's stomach that opens up like a pair of giant jaws and then bites off another man's hands at the forearm. I'm going to give you very clear. All of you can Google these gifs <laughs> and they are incredible. They are. They're gross and disgusting and, and brilliant. Like, and and so you know the, you you juxtapose this this gross graphic like certainly certainly carpenter isn't the first guy to take 50 gallons of corn syrup and dye it different colors and call it alien blood but mm-hmm. there's something about 
juxtaposing this this gross visceral loud yelling humor with the quiet dreadful tension of the rest of the film you know the thing i I, i've heard people say it's a movie about communism because it's about a bunch of guys stuck together not knowing who you can trust and I, I, I don't know if I necessarily buy into the metaphor there, but the fact that people make a metaphor is usually always a good sign for a property if someone's thinking about it that hard. I, I love that it is a, a movie about fear and tension. And the tension in the thing is this dreadful, overpowering, just you can taste it. You can taste how on edge these guys are as they like light each other's blood on fire to find out if they're aliens or not. Or, you know, even before that, before they figure out a good way to check, just not knowing. And then all of a sudden it's a random guy that you forgot was even in the movie. Turns out he's the monster and now he's eating somebody's face off. The thing is a truly brilliant movie. And I think Carpenter's willingness to try different things, to, to give a budget that was vastly disproportionate in a, a way where he was giving more money than most people gave the, the willingness to like, just fuck around and, and try stuff. You know, anybody who's seen the movie, there is a, a stunning and iconic title card sequence where the letters, the thing, literally burn into the screen. And that was done by literally lighting some stuff on fire and like making stencils of the letters in that way and then lighting film stock up so you get this practical, brilliant look. It's just, it's such a damn treat. You know, it it makes the prequel slash remake that they did in 2011, such a travesty. And I think we've talked about it on this. I think we've talked about it on this very show. That was a movie that had a bunch of practical effects. And then the studio was like, no, we want to go with CGI. And then nobody liked the prequel shocker. Yeah. Cause the CGI sucked. And you know, we, uh, we, we watched the thing, um, recently, um, just to kind of catch up on it. Cause I hadn't seen that movie in, in years and years. And I remember liking it. Um, I'll be honest. I always thought the, uh, interpretation on communism was a bit of a stretch. Um, I think it's more a commentary on nihilism, but that might be me reading my personal philosophy into shit again. (laughs) Um, but, uh, I, I, when I think of the thing, I think of the I think of the thing as a triumph of practical effects. I put the thing up there actually with Alien and up there with Jaws. Sure. In terms of movies that look so freaking perfect i you know what with jurassic park as well i would put the thing on the level with steven spielberg's best moments in effects because those are movies that you look back on them now 
here in 2021 and those effects still look better than most of the CGI we're watching. Like, I I will never be... I, I legitimately have difficulty remembering if I was more angry at Man of Steel or Spider-Man 3 for their climactic fight scenes, which literally looked like video game cutscenes. That's how bad their rendering of human faces were. And the thing was able to maintain a human mutated face on a giant monster. The thing was able to still make that face look kind of like the person it was based off of as it was crawling across the floor in one scene. Spoilers for a movie that came out in 1982. <laughs> also obligatory, you gotta be fucking kidding me. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 I sat here talking in Halloween about, you know, a William Shatner mask painted white and what Carpenter was able to do with that aesthetic. And then let's see what he did with everything that Botten did with that giant budget. It is a triumph. I put that scene with the jaw stomach on par with the with John Hurt's alien scene. Yeah. With the face hugger yeah. being birthed out, which is one of the most iconic scenes in all of horror. Like that it that shot, that shot it's it's so and and you talk about tension. And I could have talked about this with Halloween. We can talk about it here. We can talk about it with most John Carpenter movies. Nobody does tension like Carpenter. The whole thing with the thing is that with basically the exception of Kurt Russell's character, R.J. McCready, um, and arguably with the exception of Wilford Brimley's character, early in the movie when he's like destroying everything because he's clearly figured out that if the thing gets out to like general civilization it will take over the human population in like a couple of years he calculates it out in a matter of months with the exception of those really those two you're not a hundred percent sure at any point who is dangerous and who is not you have the blood testing scene but a lot of people have pointed to the fact that the blood testing scene may not be exactly what you think it is at best you maybe are aware when let's say what four or five people are not infected or infected is a zombie term but like not taken over by the thing it is such tension it is so, and you hold that in your body for a full like hundred minute runtime. Yeah, Halloween is about tension. You see Michael stalking Laurie. You hear this music, this incredibly tense music, creating these moments where you're just like, I don't know what's going to happen. And frankly, maybe more than half of the time, nothing happens. You don't get that release. You just get it lessened a little bit while you move on to your next very tense scene. 
Right. Nobody does that like Carpenter. No. Not even Craven. Yeah, I would absolutely agree with that. Like, you know, the only way to know who isn't assimilated in the thing is to watch who gets killed and who doesn't. You know, Carpenter himself has there. There are certain moments that are left personally uh, that are left intentionally ambiguous. And people have been like, okay, we saw this dude's shadow. Was it this guy or this guy? And Carpenter has straight up been like, there is no answer. And to, to just be like, no, it's a mystery. And we left it open so that you could make these fan theories is brilliant. Nobody does tension like Carpenter. And I I think this is actually the best moment to talk about Carpenter's contributions as a composer, because what is the tension if not a brilliant score set to create tone and mood and feeling you know, we're, we're coming up at the end here and I, I, I want to be able to talk about this part of it, especially and, and his legacy. You know, I, I mentioned Carpenter only made 18 films, which I consider to be a relatively short amount for how much how big of a name he is and how long he's been doing it and how long he'd been doing it. You know, the last film he made was in 2010 and he he kind of quietly allowed himself to ride off into the sunset and and just focus on music. Once you get past the thing, Christine, big trouble in little China, they live in the mouth of madness. Like escape from LA is the last big movie he made and people hated it. Mm -hmm. It's not his best. Yeah. in, In a way, you know, they live, which came out in 1988. That was like the last one that people really look at, look at and talk about and pay lip service to. And and so in the interest of time, you know, I'll, I'll say, unless you had anything specific you wanted to talk about, you know, they live is the, uh, John Carpenter film. We just watched for cult fiction. So you can hear me and Stephanie talk about it on there. I have come here to chew bubble gum and kick ass. And I'm all out of public. Oh. I, I want to hear your words, especially as somebody who is musically inclined much more than I about Carpenter as a composer. So the biggest thing I'll say about Carpenter as a composer is um, he's a very untechnical player. Um, he is the son of a music teacher. Um, his... The, what you mentioned at the beginning of the episode, you know, he attended Western Carolina U, or Western Kentucky University, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, his father was the music chair there. Like he, he is, he is a child of a musician. Um, he grew up around music, but he is, and, and you know, he knows, he knows basic theory. He, he definitely knows more theory than me. He, he comprehends what a key sounds like. Um, he knows how to play the piano. Um, in his later years, he, uh, actually he's in a touring rock band, you know, he, he releases albums, uh, granted his son and his godson are both in his band. Um, and it's, it's definitely a passion project. The man certainly doesn't need any more money. Um, but he's very untechnical, but he is this master of mood and the notion of, applying emotion to sound um funny enough if i'm gonna compare him compositionally speaking 
He's obviously more technically trained than this, but he reminds me a lot of, like, a Kurt Cobain. He is not terribly obsessed with being technically proficient. Mm -hmm. He knows way more theory than Cobain ever did, but he's very concerned with the sound of things, the aesthetic, the mood, and he doesn't care a whole lot about how he gets there. Carpenter was one of the first film composers to really embrace the synthesizer in the late 70s. Um, you know, at that point, people weren't really embracing synths. No, like, Stevie Wonder was using synths. Because Stevie Wonder is better than all of us. Um, Carpenter embraced synths and... Some of that had to do with their versatility. It meant he could do a lot with a little. When he was still making independent films and scoring a lot of them himself, they made the ability for him to do a lot. Um, you know, you listen to the original score of Halloween, you know, he could make string sounds. Those weren't strings. Those were synthesizers that he had his friend program because he didn't know how they worked. Like, he just was able to do a whole lot of things. But in 1978, that was enormous. Nobody was doing that. Again, this is the time of John Williams creating giant orchestral scores, which granted are brilliant and incredible. But it's John Williams with an orchestra, and this is John Carpenter with a synthesizer. With a synthesizer in an afternoon, like... Three days in a studio, he does the entire score. Almost entirely improvised. Minus a melody he had more or less worked out at home. What the fuck? <laughs> our, our stance I, on auteurs is, is noted. And, you know, you've brought it up again here. Auteurs are not necessarily a good thing. And, and Carpenter isn't necessarily an auteur, but it's it's fascinating to look at this man who is considered one of the like premier directors of his era and then recognize how integral music has always been to him. And then I'll, I'll take it a step forward. I think it's really fascinating and telling that John Carpenter to date, because he's made the soundtracks for all of his films, he has more commercial albums than he has movies made. You know, most of them are soundtracks, but if somebody who, who had never watched any movie and just, just was looking up the man, they would go, Oh, that's interesting. Normally you hear like, a singer becomes an actor. You don't really hear that. Like a director becomes a musician. And yet here we are. Like there's, there's a few movies he didn't do the score for. He didn't do the score for the thing, but most of his movies he did. I think he even won an Oscar for, no, he won a Saturn award for vampires in 98, um, for the music on that. But he's done the music for most of his movies. And you're, I mean, Andy, you're the film guy. I'm the music guy, but like you, music can make or break a scene sometimes. Absolutely. Music, especially something like a thriller or a horror or a drama. 
it's so essential. It is. And you, you don't see people do this. You don't see people do this unless they are a yet to be discovered rising star young gun director in the industry and they're making a movie that they did the the low budget director shooter editor soundtrack thing and in fairness carpenter did that but unlike everybody else he never stopped and and there is something really cool about that i love it i absolutely love it um, I had one more point I wanted to talk about sure. um, before we before we wrapped, and that was Carpenter as a satirist. Um, so if you will indulge me, uh, you we, we've talked about it a couple of times. Uh, I think the preeminent example of Carpenter's satire is the movie They Live, mm-hmm. um, which most of you will know um, specifically just by the soundbite of Rowdy Roddy Piper uh saying i am here to chew bubblegum and kick ass and i am all out of bubblegum as he shoots up a bank filled with both people and aliens specifically <laughs> shooting the aliens yeah yeah important clarification but you know that that hit a lot differently in the 80s <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely um but they live is this movie that is ostensibly about aliens invade the earth but instead of invading the earth the way they do in say the thing um they uh actually just replace humans and they are disguised and they are living amongst us and they are filling us uh through advertising and media with these messages these subliminal messages to be docile and to breed and to spend money and it's this giant satire on consumerism and greed and advertising and is it the best movie in his milieu no um is it better than some people give credit for i think so i I mean i I very much think so yeah like you know it's it, it is a very fun movie especially you know the first like two-thirds of it and i'd argue the whole thing is is just a really great time one of like it it leads to one of my favorite uh behind the scenes moments ever um and i'm not talking about the six minute long fight rowdy piper and keith david got into but you know it's so great uh john carpenter made it as a critique of reaganism and reagan era capitalism and this like this buy spend greed good mentality and and people will come to him to this day people online will come to him and be like okay so when you made they live and and you had this subversive um the subversive species like controlling things from behind the scenes and and making the people making the common man docile making the working man weak you were talking about the jews right people ask him this people ask him if it's a if it's his like QAnon critique of of you know the the conspiracy that jews run the world and carpenter will be like no you fucking asshole it's reaganism (laughs) Reaganism was bad, and I called it. 
And the idea of John Carpenter, like, bitch slapping some QAnon dork keeps my heart warm at night. I love that. And, and I mean, that's the thing. It's like, he's, he, li- he, he deliberately left a lot of things to interpretation. Um, I think in some cases kind of hoping that the message would come across. I don't think they live as a critique of Reaganism is that confusing. Like even remote I, I would even argue it might be more of a critique of like popular media than reaganism in particular but that's my interpretation and i'm pretty sure if i said to carpenter hey so like they live you're you're mainly criticizing like media culture and you know idiot media that just kind of spreads conceits of capitalism without any kind of questioning and he'll probably be like, yeah, I mean, there was some Reaganomics stuff in there, too. But you got the gist. Like, I'm pretty <laughs> sure that'd be his reaction to my interpretation. I, I don't think and, he would be wrong. No. And I mean, like, okay, are all of his movies giant satires? No. I don't, I don't think Christine is a satire of anything. Christine is a cool-ass, like, monster movie, basically. An adaptation of a Stephen King novel. It's it's great. Like, I, I actually really like Christine. I don't think it's a great movie, but I really like it. Um, But he still will also... Like, Escape from New York is very much a satire. Um, They Live is a great satire. And even as recently as, um, you know, the mid-2000s, when he was kind of semi-retiring or in the process of... um, You know, he did did an episode of Showtime's Masters of Horror... um, uh, in the second season, in an episode called Pro-Life, which is about a young girl who is raped and impregnated by a demon, very, like, very Rosemary's baby, and she wants to have an abortion, but she she isn't able to because she has religiously fanatical, uh, a religiously fanatical father and brothers who, like, won't allow her to do it through very extreme measures. And she's literally been impregnated by a demon. And... Look, that synopsis is satire in and of itself. Carpenter's politics are very, very clear. And I think he's... I don't think he gets enough credit as a satirist. I'm going to say that. Like, he's, you know, he. I don't think he's our Jonathan Swift or anything. But, like, we want to talk about him as a horror director and as a thriller director and a composer, but we don't talk enough about his, just his satire and his ability to put forward an idea, like a political idea and infuse it into really great art. Right. I think, I think that's the key, you know, um, we kind of touched on it with the thing, I'm sure if somebody wanted to look at Halloween with a particular bent, I'm sure there's one to be found in there. But like, this is a guy who has never been worried or afraid to speak his mind and, and make his viewpoints on something known in in a way that I actually really appreciate. And and maybe that just goes coincidentally with the fact that he's not like a problematic asshole. (laughs) Um, Yeah. But no, I, I find that really commendable. I think I, I think we've been dancing the entire time. Like John Carpenter is a quality director. And we've talked about directors on the show, but we've never devoted a double segment to one before. 
And the thing mm-hmm. is, he's not an auteur. He's not a control freak. He's not a Stanley Kubrick or an Alfred Hitchcock or even a Christopher Nolan. He's not a Robert Rodriguez who will do it all of himself. Carpenter's capable of it, but he knows Mm -hmm. how to do the one part of the job. Admittedly two parts because he composes his films. He, He knows how to do these things and then leave when he is allowed to. And when he has the budget to leave the other artistic components to the other artists. You know, he he let Dean Cudley shoot the thing and Halloween. He let Rob Botton make the special effects. He focused on being a director and maybe even as a component of his ability to direct a composer. I mean, and I would also say even as a writer, his best work was with Deborah Hill. And he is the first one to champion Deborah Hill as someone who came up with so many ideas in their movies together. Like he, he, he doesn't like to take, he he won't take credit for things he doesn't feel he deserves credit for. If he thinks Deborah Hill, he'll, he'll call out the things in Halloween that Deborah Hill came up with or in escape from New York. Like he will straight up say, no, that was that was Deborah's idea. That was something that she came up with. Um, I had nothing to do with that. Uh, I just ran with it when we directed it. Like, he, he gives credit. And in film, which is such a collaborative art, arguably one of the most collaborative arts, we want to give it to a director. Sometimes we want to give it to an actor, too, but largely we want to give it to directors. And... Even for movies where he directed and wrote and composed, yeah, he'll give the, the he'll he'll call out his cinematographer. He'll have. I don't think he's ever edited a single movie that he ever did. Like he always worked with editor with great editors on that. Um, he didn't write the thing. Bill Lancaster did, and it's a great script. And he's just. He is so great at. He'll craft a vision as a director, but he will. You're right. He will absolutely never pretend to auteurism. Right. Never pretend this is his vision unto itself without other people's involvement. He gives credit. You're and, and you know you you said this. As far as I know, he's never done any shit. Like he's he's not he's not a terribly <laughs> problem like the most problematic thing he did is like have some clearly exploitation uh, inspired boobies at the end of like at, during parts of Halloween or at the end of They Live, like played up for a laugh. But okay, I mean, yeah. there are worse things in the world. There are worse. You know, you you look through the guys' uh, Wikipedia at least, and, and the 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 biggest thing you can point to is he is a self-professed video game nerd. Um, and his kid got him really into Sonic the Hedgehog and it's just sort of become like a lifelong thing. The guy likes to do. He, as, as far as we know, as of, you know, 2021, the, the man has never been horrible or an asshole on set or, or any of these things. He's, 
he is a good guy. He is, he's a good guy and a really great director and a really excellent composer and a really phenomenal writer. And so for all of those reasons, I, I think it's appropriate. He's been our first uh, film. He, he's been the first director we've talked about for a triple love special. So. Yeah, I, I am delighted with this, Andy. Uh, we're closing in on the 90 minute mark, which is roughly the runtime of Halloween, uh, which is, <laughs> you know, the ideal length of any story in the world. Um, play play you know, this the, podcast and play Halloween and sync, see how they sync up. And we might have a uh, wizard over the rainbow scenario on our hands. I mean, in fairness, at this point, it's probably like it was the 70s, Andy. They used to have like 10 minutes of credits at the end. Like, oh, that's a good point. <laughs> we're probably at the point where it's like Halloween theme proposed, but composed by John Carpenter, like scrolling through filmed in Panasonic 35 millimeter <laughs> copyright 1978. Like, eh, that's the point of the movie we're in now. But like, either way, I... I appreciate you going on this journey with me. I wasn't so sure because, 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 like, because, like, on Carpenter, but, like, unlike Kevin Smith, I haven't seen almost all of his movies. I've seen, you know, I look at this 18, I've seen probably a little more than a third of one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, uh, eight, nine. Yeah, I've seen about half of them. Uh, a little over half of them. I've seen 10 of them. So, sure. like, granted, I've seen Halloween enough times that, like, I've seen Halloween probably more than 18 times. But, um, but no, I, I appreciate that. I, I had my I had my wonderings, honestly, because I was like, okay, well, I don't know everything about John Carpenter, but I know I love him. And I know that you love him. And the fact that we could get, um, you know, an hour and a half just, you know, spewing absolute adoration of this man and how just fucking great his work is and how decent he is and and you know i'm i'm really happy with this one andy i think we did good well i'm proud man anytime you're happy i'm happy and you know th this will be my final my final word on it to your point i definitely have not seen um even half of John Carpenter's filmography. You know, I, I talked about how surprised I was that there were only 18 films. And then I looked at that and, you know, I I've seen probably seven of them. Um, but in those seven and, and in John Carpenter as a whole, I don't think you need to know every little thing about the guy, but you can know that he gave us one of the most influential, song scores in all of film. He gave us one of the most defining action movie lines ever. I have come here to chew bubble gum and kick ass and I'm all out of bubble gum. He gave us these things. He gave us one of the greatest jump scares in all of horror. This man's highlights are enough and then you find out he's a wonderful person and then you find out he's a brilliant director and so yeah i, I i've absolutely adored talking about him with you as well dear boy 
And so that has been this episode of Love Hate Relationship. Normally, we take your relationship questions at the end of every show and give our perfectly unqualified advice. We're not going to do that now, but you can send those in to Love Hate Relationship Podcast at gmail.com where we promise we'll read them. That's right. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or even TuneIn Radio. Hey, Mom. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen a John Carpenter film in your life, but you you listen to the podcast. I appreciate you. I love you. I'll call you on Friday. Um, uh, <laughs> you can also follow us uh, on Twitter at LHRPod. That's L-H-R-P-O-D. Uh, and you can, you know, Check out our episodes, check out what we're tweeting, what we're talking about. We love tweeting about various topics as they come up. And um, also you can submit questions to us there as well. Uh, we usually, we, we often pull from relationships.txt. So if you happen to see a great relationships.txt or Reddit question online uh, and you want our take on it for some reason, send it our way, please. Our DMs are open. Absolutely. You know, I, I mentioned it. We, we've talked extensively about movies and uh, I have another podcast called Cult Fiction, where as of time of recording, I think the last episode that came out was actually on John Carpenter's They Live. So, you know, if you want to hear a more deep dive with the incomparable Stephanie Johnson, you can find Cult Fiction the same place you can find uh, Love Hate Relationship on all of your favorite podcatchers. And you can also find me, Andy Bowell, on Twitter at JoVocop2113. That's right. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram and TikTok at A underscore X underscore R-U-I-Z. Thanks for listening, y'all. We appreciate you uh, going on this journey with us. Uh, and as ever, please tell your enemies. Mm-hmm.